Gracious God, you have been faithful to us in every generation. Help us to hear the stories of our ancestors with open minds and willing hearts. Quiet in us any distraction. Teach us what we need to know. Amen. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know what I shall, uh, that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over the other against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Those who study the Old Testament while following the New, they claim that this is the chapter, indeed this is the verse, upon which everything hinges. God tells Abraham that he and Sarah will have countless descendants, constellations of descendants, galaxies of descendants, even star-spangled multitudes of descendants. Abraham believes it will be so, and for this act of belief, he is forever considered righteous. He doesn't have to build any arcs, fight battles, follow commandments, love neighbors, pray for enemies, feed crowds, or even give up anything for Lent. All he has to do is believe, and he does. He believes, and because of that belief, he has been the standard by which faith is measured for all manner of people. From the Apostle Paul to Joel Olstein, from Martin Luther to Martin Luther King Jr., from Muslims, Christians, and Jews. He has no earthly evidence, just belief that reaches far into the heavens. And if you keep reading, you discover that rewards follow. God delivers the descendants, including you and me. 
A land flowing with milk and honey for them to set up shop comes soon after. And if you keep reading even further into the life of Jesus, you'll hear Jesus say that those with faith the size of a mustard seed will be able to move mountains. You'll hear him say, knock and the door will be opened for you. You'll watch him heal lepers and cast out demons and bring the lame back up on their feet again. Nothing will be impossible for those who have faith, which is great news so long as your belief measures up. Or if your preacher hadn't suggested a couple of weeks ago that maybe belief isn't what matters most, or if you didn't hear yourself in the words of the truly panicked but tremendously honest father when he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Or if you didn't recognize yourself in the reflection of Matthew's gospel when in the presence of the resurrected Lord, the disciples both worship and doubt. Nothing will be impossible for those who have faith Well, that is great news if you are enough like Abraham, who slept deeply because he stood confidently on the promises of God. Nothing will be impossible for those who have faith is great news. But the good news is that Abraham in reality isn't nearly everything we've made him out to be in posterity. Abraham knows who God is in our reading this morning because God has come to him twice already. Along the way, Abraham and Sarah have done everything asked of them, but they are still, well, they are still waiting to see if the proof is in the pudding. So when God shows up for the third time, God's first four words tell the whole story. Do not be afraid. God says, and you only tell someone not to be afraid if you know that they are, or if you know that they have been many times before. Don't be afraid, God says. Don't be afraid because I am here, and I will keep you from harm, and your reward for trusting me, it will be very great. And that's when Abraham, the chosen patriarch of three of the largest religious traditions in the world, that is when Abraham says back to God, well, what are you going to give me? What's really in it for me? Because you've been promising for a while now without any actual results. Now, I have no doubt it happened just this way. You see, there's a guiding principle in biblical interpretation. It's meant to help us when archaeologists dig up ancient copies of manuscripts that are almost identical, except for a few letters or a word here and there. If there is no scientific way to determine which one is older, the manuscript with the more embarrassing or uncomfortable language is deemed to be older and thus most accurate. I'm hearing that laughter. It's not for the reason you're thinking. The thought is that if you have two competing texts, it's more likely that a scribe changes something to be less embarrassing or less preposterous than the other way around. 
So for Abraham, of all people, to say to the creator of heaven and earth, what's in it for me? Well, that is a bit embarrassing for us now. It's so embarrassing, it has to be accurate, because no scribe would have actually decided the story was better or more authoritative this way. And he doesn't even stop there. He follows up his question with a complaint. What's in it for me, he says, because you haven't actually made good on any of your promises yet. You may remember that elsewhere in the Bible, people are struck dead on the spot for lesser offenses than this. But God doesn't kill Abraham. He just brings him outside. Jewish interpreters of this text, they all make very careful note of this. That Abraham wasn't outside already, but that God brings him outside. I suppose that means that God doesn't say look up just because it's convenient. God has to bring him outside and then say look up because the night sky is exactly what God wants him to see. I wonder if you've ever looked up at the sky in a truly pitch black night. It doesn't count if you're thinking of a time here in Columbia because every city has too many artificial lights. They crowd out the stars. I wonder if you've ever been out in the true wilderness, wilderness where if you turn off your flashlight, the stars become the only source of light as far as your eye can see. That's when it's suddenly easier to see God's promises shining brighter than ever before. Count the stars, Abraham, God says. Count the stars if you can, because that is what it will be like to count your ancestors one day. Now, there's no actual way for him to do that. The stars, even now, as it was then, they go on and on Individual stars lead to constellations. Constellations make up galaxies, and galaxies make up the universe. And all of them glow, but some of them flicker, and some of them soar. Some of them are so small you can hardly see them. And many of them are deeper in the sky than we, or Abraham before us, can even fathom. So shall your descendants be, God says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. But how? Or why? It's at this point in the story that Barbara Brown Taylor, a tremendous preacher and theologian who has influenced my understanding of this story greatly, it's at this point in the story that she demands more of it. What happened right then, she asks. We get all kinds of other details in this story, right down to the name Eliezer of Damascus. But at the golden hinge of the story, the point at which three major world religions could have gone either way, all we get is a flat statement of fact. Abraham believed. If we are supposed to follow that example, she says, I would like a little bit more to go on. 
what happens inside of a person that allows them to trust God. She says she used to think that in order to trust anyone or anything, she first had to determine the trustworthiness of that person or object. If she were going to trust a rickety-looking bridge to bear her weight, then she waited until she could watch someone else about her same size walk across it first. If she were going to trust a friend to keep a confidence, she paid attention to whether or not that friend told her other people's secrets first. And that worked well enough, she said, until she realized the only problem was that her ability to trust stayed dependent on things that were outside of herself and thus always beyond her own control. If the bridge wobbled, she couldn't trust it. If her friend gossiped, she couldn't trust him. It was like her trust was not actually hers, she said. It always depended on how someone or something else acted. She was never really in charge of it. But then someone offered her a definition of trust that turned that upside down. He said, your ability to trust doesn't have anything to do with anyone but you. You weigh the risks and then you decide. Basically, trust means deciding you can handle it if it doesn't turn out the way you hope. Trust is never fully logical and faith never makes perfect sense. It's more like a gift that human beings are able to give. It's an act of ridiculous courage in which people who absolutely cannot control the outcome of their decision to trust, but decide to trust anyways, to act as if the universe or a person or God will be trustworthy and who figure they can handle it on the off chance they're wrong. But if you remember today's story, you see that things don't actually improve once you believe God. You actually don't even improve. I've warned our confirmands about this. I warn anyone over the age of a toddler who gets baptized. Abraham is afraid and belligerent and cranky before he believes God. And he is afraid and belligerent and cranky after he believes God. There's a little bit in between when he's looking up at the stars. Things are better then, but God promises some land and Abraham says, now how am I supposed to know if you really mean it? And we're back right where we started. But because God is God, God doesn't say, I thought we covered this already. God just says, well, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. Abraham does this, and without being given any further instruction, he cuts everything but the birds in two, and he lays the halves against each other. Now this sounds like an incredibly gruesome scene, but that's how covenants were made back then. 
It's the ancient equivalent of cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. You make promises and then you walk between the pieces of the animals as if to say, may the same thing happen to me if I fail to keep my word. It's the way that humans made promises to one another. But before Abraham can actually do any walking, night falls and deep, deep darkness descends. And this time, instead of looking up at the stars, he looks out at the animals and he sees a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces, not held by anyone. He sees smoke and he sees fire, two of the ways that God consistently chose as a way to say, I'm here, I am right here. You see, Abraham thought that he would be the one to walk between the animals, but God is the one who does the walking. And as Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, while Abraham watches, God assumes the entire risk of the covenant, which includes the very great risk of trusting Abraham with divine promises and possibly being wrong about him. She says that is what faith looks like, at least on that night. Abraham accepts the risk of gambling on a God who has already gambled on him. We've been talking about a different kind of Lent this season, one that is gentle and permission-giving, one that offers us a chance to breathe maybe more deeply than we've been able to do in a long time. So if you have been carrying any anxiety or uncertainty about whether your belief is enough or whether your capacity for trusting the promises of God is enough, or if your ability to live out your faith is enough, well, remember this. God has enough faith in you already, just the way you are. And if you ever need to be reminded of that, go outside at night and look up at the stars. One of them has had your name on it since the very beginning. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.